Thank you, Ben. It's good. I need that. It's a special thing. My name is Ben. If you don't know me, I'm the community pastor here. And uh, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. And we're in the third and final week of our series called Kingdom of Heaven. If you haven't seen the other two sermons, I encourage you to jump online and check them out or listen to them on the podcast. You can download them and listen to them um, because they help flow into what we're going to talk about today. But we're in our final week and I want to start off by telling us about a story of my time during London. In my last six months in London, I was a barista at a coffee shop, restaurant sort of place. And London is such a multicultural place that I was working with people from all over the world. I was working with an Italian, a Polish girl, I was working with four Albanians, I was working with Egyptians and a Moroccan and some Pommies, of course. And uh, it was just absolutely multicultural, multi-ethnic. And uh, the Egyptians and the Moroccan also happened to be Muslim. And when Ramadan came around, which is around May or June each year, they all fasted. Now, Ramadan is part of the Islamic calendar, and Muslims all over the globe abstain from food during daylight. And uh, London was a pretty bad choice for them, because that time of year is around sort of spring, summertime, so the sun doesn't set until 10 p.m., so... I don't know why they chose to stay in London, but they got through it somehow. And I remember them telling me a few times how they were fasting, and it almost seemed like they were advertising it. It seemed like they were quite proud to be so devoted. And one of the guys, he kept telling me almost every day, I'm fasting. And if he was getting angry about something, he'd shout at me, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. Shouting at me, and I'd run out of the kitchen. Or... But uh, as I observed them, it sometimes seemed to me that it was only inflating their own sense of pride. Their observance of Ramadan was supposed to be all about their God, but I couldn't but help but think that at the end of the day, it was really all about them. And we will see today that Jesus taught a spirituality that was not simply about doing religious things, but about how we do them and who we do them for. And last week, we dove into the Sermon on the Mount, and we saw Jesus talk about two kinds of righteousness in Matthew 5, verse 20. We we saw him talk about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and the righteousness, the exceeding righteousness, that belongs to the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were honoured by most Jews of the day as impeccable concerning the law. But Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful, but inside are full of death and defilement. Jesus declared that the Pharisaic way does not lead into the kingdom of heaven. Instead, he showed us what it really looked like to fulfill the teaching and the law of the Old Testament. Now this week, Jesus is going to continue to discuss what this exceeding righteousness looks like. And he does this by addressing addressing three pillars of Jewish spirituality or Jewish piety. And the three pillars are giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. And Jesus expects these three pillars to be part of his disciples' lives also, but in a way that was different to standard Jewish practices. In Matthew 6, verse 1, we read Jesus saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
but then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The Pharisees loved being seen by others. They loved it when people were impressed by them. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He says, They do all their deeds to be, deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, let me quickly explain that. Phylacteries, fringes, Phylacteries are these little boxes on the top of the guy's head there, and they were these tiny little prayer boxes that contained tiny little portions of scripture in them. And the and the fringes or the tassels were the ends of their garments, and they're kind of almost like uh, the Roman Catholic rosary bead. They would use it, and they would use it to recite prayers and that sort of thing. And by the time of Jesus' day, it seems like they were sort of used as a sign of spiritual status, and the Pharisees would have bigger and bigger phylacteries and longer and longer tassels and he says for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi or teacher by others the greatest among you shall be your servant whoever exalts himself will be humbled but whoever humbles himself will be exalted There are two things we can pursue when it comes to spirituality. The smile of God or the applaud of man. Gushy and Stassen, they say, Jesus taught that human beings get a choice between serving God with purity of heart and using God as a means to serve in the idol of prestige. What are you seeking when you do Christian things or spiritual things? Are you seeking the smile of God? Or the applaud of man. I encourage you this morning to seek the smile of God and the reward that only He can give. In the verses we'll be discussing today, Jesus compares the spirituality or piety of the scribes and the Pharisees with the spirituality or piety that belongs to His kingdom. And we know that He is referring to the scribes and Pharisees because in each section on giving, praying, fasting, he refers to, he gives a negative example of the hypocrites. And Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites in Matthew 23. Look at verse 13 in Matthew 23. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he repeats that phrase six times in the chapter. So when he's talking about hypocrites, he's talking about scribes and Pharisees. Now, let's dive in and look at the three pillars of Jewish spirituality and we'll look at the first one, giving to the poor. Jesus shows us how the hypocrites give and how people of the kingdom give. Matthew 6, verses 2 to 4. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says the Pharisees and scribes practice their righteousness before others. When they give to the poor, they don't really care about them. They care about what everyone else is thinking around them. They give in public ways so as to be seen and praised by others. And unfortunately, that's all the reward that they will get. But when you give, he says, do it in secret. Seek the rewards of your Father. Don't do it for your glory. Do it for his glory. 
And Jesus gives us a practical step to put this teaching into practice. He uses the phrase, in secret, in each section. Where he, whether he is talking about praying or giving or fasting. And that's his advice to us. Do spirituality in secret. Practice piety in secret. Seek to please your Father in ways that are secret. Now, why do it in secret? Well, because it's all about God. It's not about man, it's all about God. It's all about secret intimacy with God the Father, rather than the shallow praise of the religious. And this is at the core of Jesus' teaching here. It's all about God's glory, not ours. And understanding this resolves the tension between this teaching and something Jesus said earlier in his sermon. Earlier in Matthew 5 verse 15, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Now, what is going on here? Well, should we let people see our good works or should we do them in secret? Well, for those of you who brought your Bibles, you might have figured out the answer already because I cut that verse short when I read it to you just now. The full verse says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before others so God gets the glory. Do your work in se- works in secret so God gets the glory. It's all about the glory of God. Now imagine we all permanently have a light and it's turned on and it never runs out of battery and it's always pointing at something. Now, <clears throat> some people, in everything they're doing, the light is shining on them. They live for themselves. They work for themselves. They spend money on themselves. They think about themselves all the time. And what they're really saying is, I'm really important. I'm really important. People of the kingdom do everything with their light shining on God. They live for him. They work for his glory. They steward and spend their money in ways that please him. They shine their light on God and they're trying to say, he's important. He's really important. We don't want people to look at BPCC and see the work that we do in community and see the ways that we seek God together. We don't want them to say, wow, they're really good people. They're amazing. We want everything we do to make people say, wow, Jesus must be worth a lot. He must be absolutely amazing. Look at how much they give towards others. Look at the way they seek God. Look at the way that they love one another. He must be the treasure of the world. He must be worth everything. It's all about Jesus. And that's why Jesus then gives us the practical advice to pursue intimacy with the Father in secret. It's not some kind of game where we lose points and someone finds out we've done something godly. The point is not about spending all of our time trying to hide our good deeds. Seeking God in secret helps us get to the true point, which is it's all about God's glory. He is the ultimate treasure. His reward is millions of times better than man's. The spirituality of the scribes and the Pharisees looked God-focused, but it was really man-focused. The spirituality that belongs to the kingdom sometimes looks man-focused, but is really God-focused. Why do I say this? Well, Like I said last week, the Pharisees were praised 
for their adherence to the law. But Jesus says they were actually full of lawlessness in Matthew 23, verse 28. So in the eyes of the religious, the Pharisees looked great. But in King Jesus' eyes, they looked ugly. What about Jesus? How did he look in the eyes of the religious? Well, look at the accusation leveled at him and his disciples by the religious in Luke 5, verse 33, where it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. The implied accusation is, you don't fast or pray much. You just seem indulgent and carnal. Jesus said in Matthew 11 verse 19 as well, the Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In the eyes of the religious, Jesus and his disciples might have looked unspiritual or ungodly at times. But that's because I believe they practice kingdom spirituality. A spirituality that is not focused on man, but on God. They probably did most of their praying in secret. I mean, at least Jesus did. We read about him often going to times of solitude, going to places of solitude to be with his father in secret. Because his desire was not to pursue the praise of man, but to have intimacy with his father and to seek his glory. Jesus tells us not to give to impress others, for then we have received our reward, but to give in secret that we might be rewarded by our Heavenly Father. So do you give to the needy? Do your spending habits shine the light of your life on you or on God? Does your spending say, I'm really important? Or does it say, God's really important? important giving in secret then Jesus goes on to talk about the second pillar he talks about prayer and he says when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you pray Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first thing I want us to notice in each of Jesus' sections on spirituality is that he assumes we will do these things. He assumes that we are his followers, that we want to be like him. So he simply teaches us how we're supposed to do them. And right now he's teaching us how to pray. You see, the Pharisees loved to pray in public and in church or the synagogues because they loved impressing others with their super spiritual life. But who you are in private is the real you. We might not see you in private, but God sees. Do you pursue God in private or in public only? Do you pray at home or only in front of others? Do you spend time seeking God throughout the week or only on Sundays? Spend time in secret with your Heavenly Father. And that title for God, Father, is an important one. The Greek word for it is pater. And look how much it comes up in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. I've highlighted in yellow for you. 
It's absolutely massive. It comes up so much in chapter 6 that we're spending our time in this morning. Gushy and Stassi, Stassen comment on this saying, saying, How then can we as disciples get free of the desire for human recognition and thus do all our practices of righteousness for God alone? A clue can be found in the eight references to God as your Father in Matthew 6, verse 1 to 18. These reflect the extraordinary intimacy and trust that Jesus experienced with God and invited his disciples to experience. Isn't that beautiful? If you read through the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, you can't help but notice Jesus' intimacy with the Father. And Jesus says to us in these verses today, He's your Father also. He's with you in secret and in public. You can experience the love and the intimacy of God as well. Pursue Him in secret. And I'll tell you what, at the risk of looking like a Pharisee, some of the most rich experiences I've had in God's presence is in those times where I've sought Him in secret. And some of the greatest times of peace, of joy, of of discovering His will for a situation have been times where I've sought Him in secret. Don't you want that? Don't you want God to awaken you to His reality, to His presence? to his kingdom, his rule, breaking into this world here and now. You'll receive petty, fleeting rewards if you want to be spiritual to impress religious people. But if you seek your Father and his glory, you'll receive his reward. Seek your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And maybe you're thinking, I want to pray, but I don't know how. Where do I even start? Well, Jesus warns us in the next verses not to think that we have to pray some kind of perfect prayer to get it right. We don't have to repeat things over and over to to make sure that they're effective and that that the prayer is working. A good way to approach prayer is by praying thoughtful prayers. Thoughtful prayers. Matthew 6, verse 7 to 8. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus tells us that our Father knows everything about us. He knows you more deeply than you know yourself. He knows your needs. He knows your weaknesses. And He has deep compassion for you. Look at Psalm 103 where it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He cares for you far more than you could ever imagine. So when you come to pray, come before a deeply compassionate and loving father and practice thoughtful prayer. It's not about praying the right words or the amount of time you spend in prayer or about heaping up empty phrases. When you come before him, you can just start by telling him what's on your mind. Tell him that thing that you are anxious about at work. Tell him that person that you're bitter against at the moment because of something that they said. Tell him him about this event that you're excited about and just go from there. Talk to him from the heart. 
Tell them what's on your mind. Don't try to manipulate them by saying the right things. We can't do that. Just spend time with him. Listening, praying, sharing. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So we've spoken about two of the three pillars of Jewish spirituality. What about the third pillar, fasting? Well, Jesus talks about it in verses 16 to 18. And we read, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, don't bring attention to yourself. Seek your Father and his reward, not the praise of others. When you fast, don't smear your face with ashes and advertise to everyone else that you're not eating food because you're so spiritual. When you fast, do what you would normally do. Comb your hair, wash your face, and keep it between you and God. It's not about man. It's all about God. Jesus assumes that his followers will fast. While he was with them, he didn't expect them to fast because that was a beautiful, enigmatic time. But he hints at the fact that when he is gone, that they will fast in Matthew 9, verse 15. And I'm convinced that Western Christianity, and we're a part of that, needs a radical recovery of fasting. Fasting doesn't seem to be emphasized or all that common in the Western Christian world. Or maybe everyone is just so amazing at doing it in secret that I just don't know about it. Maybe that's what it is. But seriously, I think it is part and parcel of the Christian life, just like Jesus, ex- because just like Jesus expected it would be. And I think one of the reasons I think it is so important for us to recover this practice is because it helps us to reject the monster of more. You see, we swim in the waters of consumerism. Tom Sine writes about this in his book, Mustard Seed versus McWorld. And here's something he writes in chapter 6 of his book. It's long, but I think it's good. I'm going to read it to us. It says, he starts talking about a book in a book, so it's kind of like Inception. But, so he talks about his, this book in his book, and he says, In his provocative book, The End of Work, Jeremy Rifkin recalls how in the 1920s, corporations began designing a strategy to motivate us all to want more. They invented a market strategy to create a permanent class of dissatisfied consumers. Until then, people were quite content if they were able to meet their essential human needs. Once they reached that point, their levels of consumption leveled off. People being satisfied with enough has always been a serious problem for those who want to promote a high level of economic growth. Economist John Kenneth Galbraith stated that the new mission of business, therefore, was to create the wants it seeks to satisfy. The only, way, the only way it is possible to create new wants is to persuade people to seriously change their values. Over the past 70 years, and it gives you a hint that the book's a little bit old, but it's still relevant, the corporate world has succeeded brilliantly in persuading us to change our values and our wants. And it isn't surprising that we succumb. Over any 24-hour period, we are assaulted with an average of 3,000 messages that seek to persuade us we are inadequate if we don't purchase the newest novelty. 
before a child enters first grade, they will be exposed to over 30,000 advertisements, not only to give them an appetite for novelty, but to decisively shape their worldview. The message of the McWorld Consumer Church couldn't be clearer. The ultimate meaning of human existence is getting all this stuff. Later on in his book, he mentions that in a documentary called Affluenza, a marketing executive in a corporate training session says something horrific. They say, you must get kids branded by age five if you want to have them as faithful consumers of your product. Sine also recalls how a primary teacher in northern England told him how other kids in the class that didn't have acceptable corporate logos on their clothing were bullied by the others. I mean, this is incredible. The media and the advertisers have done brilliantly in creating dissatisfied consumers. This this culture of consumerism that we swim in, this monster of more is antithetical to the kingdom of God. It is absolutely opposed to the kingdom of God. And I believe fasting is a neglected but important strategy for us to break out of this false culture. Why? Because food is readily available for most of us in Australia. Most of us in the middle class would never imagine not being able to eat something tomorrow. And it's everywhere. It's it's available after church. You go to someone's house, they'll put a bowl of chips out for you. At work, someone has a birthday, they bring a cake. And if you're anything like me, young and ignorant, it's a fast metabolism still, you don't even think twice. You just eat the snack, you, you take a handful of chips, you take a slice of cake and, and maybe another if, if it's really good. <clears throat> and it's just consumerism. It's this monster of more. The belief that more consumption equals happiness. Just take a time to think about that. I, think, I was thinking about that this week. I just bought into that idea that more consumption equals happiness. More money, nicer homes, more holidays beautiful food, many of us buy into the Western dream and believe that these things bring happiness. When we fast, however, we can resist the powers of consumerism. We resist the selfish inclinations of the flesh and we declare that God is our true source of satisfaction and joy, not consumption. We declare that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. We free up time that we usually, so many hours spent on preparing food and eating it to pray and to serve others. Fasting is a part of the kingdom life that Jesus presents in his Sermon on the Mount. And Jewish culture knew much about fasting. They were experts in the practical aspects surrounding it. They knew how it worked. It was just part of their culture. Whereas fasting is almost non-existent in Australian culture today. So this week I've written a blog which talks about how to approach fasting from a practical point of view. It was posted on Facebook on Friday. It's available on the website. And uh, it would have been handed out to you this morning as well as you walked in. You can go and grab one. And um, I pretty much relied mostly on Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. But I wrote that to encourage us to make an attempt at, at making fasting a part of our lifestyle. I'm serious about it when I, when I talk about it. I think Jesus is serious about it. So I've made an attempt to, to talk a little bit about how we can do it practically. We fast not because we have something to prove, not because we want to impress others, not because we are trying to be righteous enough, but because through the cross, 
Jesus destroyed the wall of sin that separated us from God. He gave us his righteousness as a free gift of grace. He took our sin and shame and released us into relationship with our compassionate, loving, heavenly Father. And we can fast because we want to draw near to him. We can fast because we want to be part of his kingdom reality. We want to see the world his way. We can fast because we want to resist the God of our bellies and the tides of consumerism. Jesus assumed his followers would fast. Not because he wants to make you angry like a shouting chef, because he wants to lead you in the narrow path of life. He wants us to embrace his rule. He wants us to see through the lies of the culture. And I believe fasting can be a tool to help us to break out of the Western worldview and into the kingdom worldview. Jesus' kingdom is characterized by righteousness and peace and joy. Romans 14 verse 17. And his kind of spirituality doesn't lead to the exaltation of self, but to intimacy with our compassionate and loving Father. The kingdom of heaven is here, friends. God's new order has already arrived. And we as the church are meant to be shining lights of his new order. We're meant to show the world around us the beauty and the joy of living under God's rule. So let's pursue him and his kingdom through giving money away, through spending time in intimate prayer and by fasting to draw near to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we have access to your teaching, Jesus. And it might have challenged us this morning. Lord, please lead us in the life of the kingdom. Show us what it looks like to be part of your new order, the church. Help us to shine as lights in this world, to show the world around us that this is the way we were meant to live, meant to live under God's rule. It's good. It's good. It might be narrow, but it leads to life. Help us, Holy Spirit, fill your people and lead us that we might please you, love one another, pray, give away money, and fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.